from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Hey everybody, this is Spaz. You have tuned in to another episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Got a great show. On this episode, I'm going to be chatting with a gentleman by the name of Milt Chapman, who's worked with the Smothers Brothers and Glenn Campbell and Climax. But we're going to focus on the Ray Conniff Singers. Uh, He was a touring member of the band from 1973 to 77, and he gives some insight into the way that Ray worked. And uh, he also offers up some other information that I think that you'll be very interested in. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! As a genre, easy listening seems to be sorely overlooked by music collectors. Albums by Andy Williams, Steve Lawrence, Johnny Mathis, Jim Neighbors, Engelbert Humperdinck, Robert Goulet, these seem to fill the bins of every thrift store across the U.S., unwanted, unloved, and misunderstood. And while they may represent schlocky, light entertainment to many people, to some, these albums represent a musical universe full of creativity, wonder, and beauty. These three words can most definitely be applied to the recorded output of Ray Conniff, who released over 100 albums in his lifetime, and many more if you include the many compilations that have been issued since Ray first took center stage as a band leader over 60 years ago. Ray's commercial profile in the U.S. may have diminished in the 60s, yet he remained a massively successful artist overseas. From the U.K. to Japan to Latin America, Ray continued to lead his orchestra and singers in the studio and on tour, up until his death at the age of 85 in 2002. Since then, Ray has become an easy-listening icon, a genius of an arranger who built a career on bringing sunshine to a world that was consumed by the darkness of war, political assassinations, and social injustice. Ray and his band and singers gave listeners a reprieve from the pains of reality. His record allowed us to regain contact with our innocence again, if only for a moment. On the surface, a Ray Conniff album may have seemed to lack depth, but once you really paid attention, you discover so much heart and soul. From his musical arrangements to the goosebump-inducing vocal harmonies, Ray managed to be creative in a genre that some say is built on blandness. Once you discover his secrets, a Ray Conniff album is anything but bland. And what people don't realize is that many of Ray's singers were the same ones that created so many of our favorite sunshine pop records in the 60s. 
Conniff Singers members Ron Hicklin and Tom and John Baylor were also responsible for providing the poporific Partridge Family sound. However, that's another topic for a different show. On this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, I chat with vocalist and musician Milt Chapman, who toured the world as a member of the Ray Conniff Singers from 1973 to 1977. While he may not have been a member of the group that recorded the albums, he was most certainly an important member of the live band that brought this music to life over 40 years ago. What you'll also discover is that Milt had a hand in many other projects, including the Smothers Brothers, Glenn Campbell, Climax, the Hilos, the Accidentals, and much more. Please enjoy the highlights of this conversation as take a trip back to a time when music painted a brighter picture in our minds and brought peace and joy to our hearts. Welcome to the Blanket Fort, Milt Chapman. Before we talk about your time with Ray Conniff, let's go back to the beginning. How did you become interested in music? And was there a, a certain moment that inspired you to follow in it as a career? Oh, I, you know, I started as a kid. I mean, you know, playing, playing the trumpet in high school and all that, you know. And I just kept playing at different instruments. And when I went into the Air Force... I played in the Air Force band, and then when I got out of there, I played in the college band. I got with a, are you familiar at all with a vocal group called the Hilos? It's very jazz-oriented. I got very interested in vocal group singing in my early 20s, and I paid particular attention to the Hilos and the Four Freshmen. They were Stan Kenton's uh, vocal group. Then uh, there was a vocal group that uh, I was part of that... uh, made some albums we were called the accidentals which spelled with an x and we made a couple of albums of note back in the late 50s that group got me into the whole group singing thing i said singing thing like I'm, i don't lisp actually <laughs> i can't believe you baby did you initially intend to be part of a, a more structured choral or band setting, or were you hoping at one point to be a, a solo artist? No, I was pretty much uh, the first one. I never thought about a solo artist. I was strictly a group singer. And uh, I went from one group to another. You probably heard the the expression studio musician. Well, I was a studio singer. There's a certain group of people in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, that are classified as studio singers. You know, they get called to sing the jingles and to sing the backgrounds on the on albums. And I never thought of being a solo singer. Before Ray, is there any particular records of note that people would know that you were part of? Well, uh, are you aware of the Smothers? Brothers. Well, I was one of their background singers. I was a, I was a regular on the show, and also on the Glenn Campbell show. I spent some time on the road with different groups. You know, uh, uh, quite a few years on the road out of out of college. I uh, went back to New York and and got a job singing at Radio City Music Hall to sing while the Rockettes were kicking their heels up. <laughs> of course, my job was to distract them, make faces and see if I could get one of them to, to mess up. <laughs> <laughs> 
when it came to working with Ray, what was the audition process like? Well, he gets names of people, and he called me and said, could you come up to the house and uh, let me audition you? So I went up to his house, and he put me through an audition. You have to read music, first of all, right? You have to, you have to, be, able, you have to be able to read and understand the music. Uh, and uh, so I did that, and he said, do you want to be in the group? I said, sure. <laughs> so it's pretty simple. He says, because there are, getting back to that studio singer thing, there's like just a whole group of people that do that kind of work. Uh, some of those old singing jingles, you know. Do you ever remember at all a singing jingle that went, that hurts, put you in the driver's seat? So I was one of the singers on that. So you're, in other words, you're in L.A., and you're circulating around, and I got sent out on the road backing some of the old singers like uh, K-Star and, and Teresa Brewer. Most of the guys sang, you know, with at least three other people. And Ray, when he called me to, to audition, he said, we've got a, a tour of Great Britain. Are you able to do that? I said, absolutely. So my first job with him after I auditioned was to rehearse and go to England. This was in the uh, winter of uh, 73. We did a whole tour of all over uh, British Isles, you know, just everywhere. We did 28 one-nighters in, in a month's time, all over England from, from top to bottom. Though Ray, in the U.S., his career had sort of peaked in the late 50s and, and, and the 60s, did you realize that you were still in the midst of something special with him? Because as far as I could tell, he was still enormously popular overseas. Oh, he was huge. He was huge. I mean, we, like I said, we did 28 one-nighters in England. and I'm talking the biggest places. I'm talking the Royal Albert Hall and, and the Manchester Opera House. You know, I'm talking major theaters. In every town, he, he would have four and five and 6,000 people at each concert. Yeah, he was huge. So we went there. And then uh, Japan, we went to Japan for a two-week tour all over Japan. And uh, Mexico, Mexico City. It was very big in Latin America. Uh, that's what I've noticed. It, it seemed like the latter part of his career kind of focused on Latin America. He did some appearing here, uh, you know, up there in Lake Tahoe. We, we went up there and we did... Harris Club in Reno and and uh, stuff like that and and uh, we did I think we did this Sullivan show but I don't know if he did that much actual appearing in the United States as as much as he did overseas you know you know he had a group way back you know what I mean I mean way back in into the forties and the fifties and and uh, basically what happened was. Uh, he would seem to change personnel about every seven years. When you went out with, with, to tour with Ray Conniff, you were like the road group. All of his albums were done in Los Angeles in, in the studios, and he had a whole different group of singers for that, like the A-Team, for instance. You know, I was not in the A-Team. <laughs> Did you get a chance to work with people like Ron Hicklin or Tom and John Baylor, or was that just all... Oh, you know those. Well, those are the guys... Yeah, yeah, I did a few dates with them. In fact, Tom Baylor, on the Smothers Brothers show, there was a gentleman running the choral group named Jimmy Joyce. 
Tom did a season on the Smothers Brothers show as one of the Jimmy Joyce singers. And I also worked with Ron Hicklin on some uh, movie calls and, and uh, jingles and stuff like that, you know. So I know those guys. They were the A-team. Ray treated voices like they were instruments, as you know, part of the band. Did you like that approach? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, you, you didn't have to learn the words. <laughs> well, for instance, I remember I was looking over some of the stuff that we did over there at in London for the David Frost show. One of the arrangements we did was one on that old song called uh, "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes," you know. And but he did not in the not in the style of of the of the hit record, but he did it as a swing song. And he injected a whole bunch of uh, jazzy, very, very jazzy, very hip little jazz licks, as we would say. No, I, I thought that was great. We, that was great to do. You know, when, you're in, when you're singing in a group, the fun of it is to, where, when the whole group really gels and just rhythmically, when you, you know, if you can get something going with four voices or eight voices or, and where it really comes off, you know, that's... That's that would be my idea of, of fun. So you basically toured with him, but not recorded with him, correct? We did an album at the BBC in London. So I have made I have made two albums with him. We did an album in London, and we did an album in Japan. These were both live albums. They were they weren't uh, studio albums. You know, we we didn't record them in the studio. We recorded them live. I was never on any of the albums that uh, Hick Leonard or Baylor were on. What do you get when you fall in love? A guy with a pin to burst your bubble. That's what you get for all your trouble. I'll never fall in love again. Basically, on the Ray Conniff uh, albums, as far as you know, was that just always different singers? Because he always seemed to have a certain vocal sound you know you can throw on a, an album from the 50s and then throw on an album from the 60s and then throw on an album from the 70s listen to the david frost thing and they do sound very similar it seemed like he had a certain sound in his head and he wanted to convey that uh using whoever let's face it i call myself a a a, a member of the b team you know I think any one of us could have been a member of the A-team, but we just weren't. <laughs> Luck of the draw and whatever, you know. When he went on the road, he, he, he made sure that he got people that could sound just like the albums. He, he gave you an audition, and, you know, he meant to do that by design. He, didn't, he wanted to have a group that sounded the same. And he was pretty successful in doing that. And plus, of course, the arrangements themselves are going to say, yeah, this is Ray Conniff, you know, he's, his old style, you know. And if you listen to Ray on the surface, I think that maybe you won't notice it, but if you sit there and you listen to a few Ray Conniff records, you're going to realize that he definitely has a distinct sound in his head that really comes out on each album. Yeah, it does, and that's the way that's in his writing. You know, when you, when you talk about uh, the high lows, for instance, you say that, you say to me, to you, they were 
quite jazzy, right, or something like that. He never tried to go there without his writing. His writing was actually less complicated than that, but it was clever, and it was like uh, he didn't strive to get far out to, to use the terminology, but it was very carefully constructed. So the tension built, and I'm thinking of a, an arrangement he did on uh, Besame Mucho, for instance. Starts out just a simple little horace, you know, in one little line, and but it was like kind of a, an orchestral approach, but it was very modern and popular, very popular, obviously. <laughs> We seem to listen to the records and, you know, they were made during an, a more innocent time. Was life with the Ray Conniff singers as easygoing as it would appear to be on the outside? Oh, it was a piece of cake. <laughs> it was easy. It was easy because once we went on tour, we we did the same program. You know, we, we, we had it down. You could do it in your sleep, you know. Now, here's the thing. When we got to England, we went on tour and there were two buses. One bus with the singers and the other bus with a 21-piece British band of all really top-notch players, you know. So we, every concert was, a, was a, you, know, fully, you know, fully realized. That every concert sounded like the album. We didn't go out and sing the records to a four-piece section, you know. We, we did a tour of Japan. We had this, this whole Japanese band, and they were just like, if you shut your eyes, you would have thought you were listening to, uh, you know, the same backgrounds as you heard on the regular record. endearing qualities of Ray's records is that he'd work with modern pop hits and repackage them for an older audience. Now, being younger than Ray, did you enjoy the fact that he was tackling songs from the rock era? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Very smart thing to do. Sometimes when I heard the original record of the pop group, I didn't particularly care for it, okay? I liked the songs much better when he did them than I did with the original group because of what you just said. He, he made them more listenable. When you go back and you listen to Ray's records, the fact that he uses these voices so perfectly, it actually brings out a lot of emotion and brings out the melodies. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you, and you can hear the melodies much better. Sometimes they get in the, on the original records, they get clouded into a lot of uh, excessive noise from buzz box or you know, whatever the terminology is, you know. You know, when you're when you're going to make records and you want the records to sell, you've got to make the records of of songs that these people relate to. They, you know, their songs of their the songs of their life. You know, so he did that, and uh, he always did it very well. Those guys like uh, like the Baylor brothers and Ron Hicklin, they knew how to do it. On the record, at least through the 60s and 70s, was Hicklin and the Baylors involved with the A-Team on those records? Oh, yeah. They were the A-Team, yeah. Uh, one that one comes to mind, maybe you know, 
there was a song called uh, Rubber Balloon or something like that. Yeah, Yellow Balloon. Yellow Balloon. That that was them. And of course, the Love Generation. One of the girls from the Smothers Brothers was one of the girls on the Love Generation. I could tell you, you can go on YouTube and you can see a song that a, a partner of mine and I wrote that they featured with the Jimmy Joyce singers on the Smothers Brothers. The song is called "Hey, Mr. Sunshine." Yeah, and some of the some of the people, two or three of the guys, and one one of the girls in particular uh, also were on the Ray Conniff group. So there's all they're always you know they're. they're you know, depending on who's available and, and, and who's who wants to do it and who wants to go on tour and stuff like that. You know. So actually, a lot of the people involved in the whole Sunshine Pop scene were also Ray Conniff singers. Yeah, in addition to the the core group, there were others as well. You know, that were kind of singers. Some of them uh, went on the road, and some of them just stayed and recorded. And were do. Of course, the Baylors did all all kinds of other things. You know? There's a yellow rose in Texas that I am gonna see. Nobody else could miss her, not half as much as me. She cried so when I left her, it liked her. Ray used to work for Mitch Miller, but later on, the Ray Conniff singers became direct competition with Mitch Miller and his gang. And then there was the Johnny Mann singers. Did Ray or the group consider these artists as competitors, or did it just seem like there was just room for everybody? I couldn't tell you what Ray's thinking on it was, but uh, Johnny Mann did some stuff, of course. Uh, he didn't. He didn't do the massive amount of albums and things that Ray did, and neither did Mitch Miller. And Mitch Miller's whole thing was more of a, a gang sing-along type thing, you know. Mitch Miller. Mitch Miller was just like a, you know. Practically a drunken brawl. Everybody sing, <laughs> you know. There's a yellow rose in Texas. Ray was re- very refined and precise and, and extremely more musical than either one of those fellows. Well, of course, he was more prolific. Uh, Mitch Miller just t- took all the the old war horses, you know, the yellow rose of Texas. And, you know, and, and Johnny Mann pretty much did his whatever he created, uh, jingles and stuff like that. So. Going back to the way he created music, he, he used to create these weird medleys from completely different songs. Like he did The Hustle uh, with I Only Have Eyes For You, or he did Wildfire mixed with Rhinestone Cowboy or whatever. Was it difficult to understand where he was coming from, or did he not do that stuff live? We did some of those things live, but that's a clever little thing in itself. To do a good medley, you put two songs or three songs together that make sense, you know, either from the lyric standpoint or the way the, the music is written, you know. Why did you end up leaving Ray and his troop? Well, um, you remember the Love Boat? That was right around the Love Boat craze, and I got offered a job to play on the Love Boat. So I said, well, that sounds pretty interesting, you know. So the, I got offered a job to, to take a cruise all over the Pacific Ocean and Alaska and Mexico. It was like four months worth. So by the time I got back, from the four-month cruise, Ray wasn't looking for anybody at the time. Either that or he just found some other people. So, you know, the old saying, if you leave town, if you're gone too long, they'll think you're dead. <laughs> when you'd work with Ray, was it a situation where you kind of had to be on call all year? Or was it a situation where you knew that, okay, 
I'm going to block out the summer months for a tour with him or the winter months or something like that. Yeah, you pretty much just had to sort of wait. We knew that we were going to do England and, and then we knew we were going to do Japan and Mexico. You kind of knew what the what the future held. So you, you could work other things around it. So I did most. I was on tour with other groups uh, between Ray. You know, I went out with... Uh, did you did you ever hear of a, a record called Precious and Few? Uh, by uh, Climax? Yeah. Well, I, I got into that group. I didn't make the record. Once again, I was in their B group. I toured with them, you know, for a couple of years. Off and on. I played the bass. I was I'm a bass player also, by the way. There was always something if you were lucky enough to be to be able to do both jobs, but sometimes you were gone and then Ray would just call other people, you know. I think I got in most of the work that Ray did over the time that I was around. Did you remain friends with Ray or any of the other singers after you left? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, several of them. Uh, I guess I'm retired from that business. One of the guys that I was buddies with on the road there, he lives out this way. And two of the other guys that, that are not living here but come out here every once in a while. And a couple of the same girls that uh, were in that group. You know, we talk every once in a while. Looking back, do you have fond memories of being one of the Ray Conniff singers? Or do you sometimes wonder what life would have been like if you had been a member of Mitch Miller's gang? I'm glad it happened the way it happened. We went on the road. We had great road experiences. You know, we went. I, I never think that I would rather done the uh, Mitch Miller group. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Milt Chapman, for hanging out and talking about his years with Ray Conniff and so much more. Special thanks go to Jeff Severson for helping me get in touch with Mr. Chapman. And I'd like to thank you for listening to our conversation and for supporting Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. Remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Smell you later.